You're listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. Welcome to the November 12, 2019 edition of Locally Sourced Science. I'm Esther Rakusin. It is already rather cold and snowy outside, even though it's still fall, so it's a good time to hide out in a museum. Today's episode provides a preview of two different museum exhibits where you can soak up some science while staying warm indoors. First, you'll hear Patricia Waldron's interview with Denise Green, Assistant Professor in the Department of Fiber Science and Apparel Design and Director of the Cornell Costume and Textile Collection. She talks about the Fashion and Feathers exhibit on display in the Human Ecology Building at Cornell. After that, you'll hear my interview with Dr. Brian Danforth, Cornell Professor of Entomology and co-curator of a new exhibit at the Museum of the Earth in Ithaca called Bees, Diversity, Evolution, and Conservation. To start off, here is Liz Mahood with this week's Science News. Hello, listeners and science lovers. My name is Liz Mahood, and I'm bringing you this week's Science News. When was the last time you stopped to smell the roses? When you've answered that, the next question is, when was the last time you stopped to smell the roses and thought about what chemicals you're smelling? Roses make a distinctive type of chemical called rose ketones. These are special not only because they smell so nice, but also because they are only made by roses. Many types of plants, roses included, are known for their production of unique chemicals, many of which benefit humans as medicines, flavors and scents, dyes, etc., Figuring out how certain plants make their unique chemicals has long plagued scientists, as these plants are often understudied, and information about what particular genes could lead to these chemicals has remained scarce. However, this is all set to change, as a recent large-scale study, published in the journal Nature, has garnered genetic resources from 1,124 species of plants. The majority of these species come from plant groups historically understudied, such as mosses and hornworts, red, brown, and green algae, ferns, and non-crop flowering plants. With genetic information from such a broad group of plants, the authors, which include several researchers at Cornell University and the Boyce Thompson Institute, use this data to theorize how certain plant traits, such as seeds and flowers, evolved. The authors were also able to determine which gene families expanded in which plant lineages information that may help in determining the genetic basis of certain plant chemicals. This article, entitled 1,000 Plant Transcriptomes and Phylogenomics in Plants, was published in the October 23rd edition of Nature. The next news story is about a win-win for the human race and a group of retired sled dogs. Cornell University Professor of Animal Science, Dr. Heather Hewson, and Professor of Small Animal Medicine, Dr. John Loftus, have been awarded a grant to research how processes that could lead to aging in humans are playing out in these athletic pups. Doctors Hewson and Loftus are monitoring the levels of these viral proteins in their sled dogs and will correlate this information with the physical fitness and disease occurrence in their dogs. All the tests the dogs undergo are either minimally invasive, such as a blood test, or non-invasive, such as measurement of physical activity. The dogs get to retire in comfort as well, as they have human companions and lots of playtime. That wraps up this episode's science news. I'm Liz Mahood. Head to our website at locallysourcedscience.org 
For podcast links and our show archive, you can also tweet at us at FLX Science Radio. Hello, locally sourced science listeners. I'm Patricia Waldron, and today I'm talking with Dr. Denise Green, an assistant professor in fiber science and apparel design at Cornell University. She's going to be talking with us about the Fashion and Feathers exhibit, currently on display at the College of Human Ecology. Thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. So tell me a little bit about the idea behind this collection and how it came together. The idea for the exhibition began last winter when I was giving a tour of our exhibit at the time, which was called Women Empowered, Fashions from the Frontline. And John Fitzpatrick, who's the director of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, was in attendance with his wife, Molly, who's an amazing jewelry designer. And the three of us began talking about the idea of an exhibition that would look at the intersection of fashion and birds, particularly feathers. Feathers are an endless source of inspiration for fashion and textile designers. We see representations of birds and feathers on textiles, garments from all over the world. And yet, on the other side, uh, birds have been exploited for their feathers, and some species hunted to extinction and others to near extinction for their plumes. And so this relationship between fashion and feathers is fraught and troubling in many ways. And so in our exhibition, we decided to frame it around the sort of nebulous uh, space between birds as inspiration and the exploitation of birds. And so while it may seem sort of black and white that, you know, when you take a feather from a bird, that's the exploitation side. And then when you say, you know, silkscreen print a bird onto a textile, that's just inspiration and harmless. In fact, it's a lot more complicated than that, because we know the textile industry is the second largest polluter of water in the world. And there are potentially ethical ways of harvesting feathers and down, which is a natural renewable resource. And so getting at uh, some of those gray areas and really trying to get people to think about not only the birds that are natural resources that go into the making of of clothing, but really all of the exploitation of the environment and and labor to produce the clothes that we wear. So we want to, in all of our exhibits that we do, we try to get at these nuances and the complexities of fashion. So it seems like people have been putting a bird on it for a long time. Um, (laughs) Was there like a time when feathers were sort of the peak of fashion? Feathers have come in and out of fashion, and anyone who saw the most recent Met Gala, there were feathers all over the red carpet. But really, our story in this exhibition begins in the late 19th century, when, as you say, putting a bird on it was very popular, particularly in the millinery industry, so for hats. And during this period, this is when we have the hunting to near extinction of many species of birds. And by the turn of the century, from the the 19th to the 20th century, historians estimate that 300 million birds were killed for fashion. And many of these birds were kept in whole, literally entire whole birds placed on the side of a a hat um, as an ornament. We have an example in this exhibition of an 1890s hat that has an entire bird of paradise, uh, which is a, a very beautiful bird, of course, um, from Papua New Guinea. So it's this sort of status symbol. It's very worldly appearing, um, but is an actual whole bird on a, on a, on a hat. We also have examples of plumes from the great egret. And 
great egrets in North America, by 1900, 95% of the population had been killed. And it's really this bird that inspires two very fashionable women in Boston to boycott the great egret plume and to come together to found what would become the Audubon Society on a national scale. But for the two of them in Massachusetts, they found the Massachusetts Audubon Society, which really begins the conservation movement. So again, as we think about this complex relationship between fashion and feathers, Simultaneously, we have the emergence of the conservation movement directly tied to fashion and the atrocities that it put forth. And on the other side of that, we have the, the emergence of this really important organization that has, has you know, led to changes in law uh, to protect migratory birds in the early 19-teens and continue to advocate for the protection of, of birds around the world. And so it's a really interesting kind of history. But that plume is particularly fascinating, not just because of its, its beauty, but because it only appears during breeding season. And so to harvest that plume means not only killing that bird that, that has the feather, but all of its nestlings and the future generations, because that bird's no longer there to care for, for its young. And of course, these um, egrets lived in colonies, so plume hunters could obliterate entire colonies of birds overnight. And this was a real tragedy. And um, this happened to a number of, of different birds. So another accessory that we have on display in this exhibition is a brooch. It's made of Carolina parakeet scalps um, and, and tail feathers. And the Carolina parakeet is now extinct. Uh, the last living parakeet died in captivity. I think it was in the, in the late 19-teens. Uh, this is a beautiful parakeet that lived in this region. It was the northernmost parakeet to exist. And so we have an example of, a, of an accessory, this uh, very beautiful brooch um, that's been displayed on an 1886 walking gown. And what we've done in the exhibition, in this part of the exhibit where we look at the feathers themselves, we've displayed the feathers alongside the study skins of the birds. So study skins, people are probably familiar with taxidermy, right? When you have a mounted animal, it's in a posture, in a position, it's got glass eyeballs. Uh, but study skins are, like what they sound, they are the skin of the, the bird in this case. Um, and it's stuffed with cottons. So it doesn't have the glass eyes and they lie on their backs, um, belly up, and they're used by ornithologists and, and others as study specimens. And so we have these on display to reveal to people what parts of the bird are used in the, in the fashion item that they see alongside of it. And we've done this in the case in, in one, um, one particular part of the exhibit. We actually have a, a chucker partridge. Um, which has very distinct flank feathers. And these have a beautiful pattern on them and have been used for fashion items. So on the one side of the study skin, we show a 1940s fedora designed by Jack McConnell, who was considered to be the king of millinery um, during this period and dressed a lot of Hollywood uh, actors and actresses. And so you have this hat covered in these feathers but because the feather has been removed from the body of the bird and from its face, it doesn't really look that disturbing to us. And then on the other side of the, the study skin, we've displayed a contemporary hat by a Milner taxidermist named Rachel Schloss. And what she's done is she's actually 
saved a skin that uh, chucker partridges were introduced to this region for game farms for hunting. And so she had acquired this skin from a Pennsylvania hunter who was hunting the partridge for the meat, was going to dispose of the skin. And so she's diverted that waste and made it into this incredible hat. The partridge looks like it's about to fly right off of the cap. And it's very disturbing, though, because you see its face. Its face is kind of tilted down. There are these pearls in the beak. Um, and yet that is in many you know, arguably the much more ethically sourced skin, whereas the hat that looks to most of us as fashionable, less sort of jolting, is in fact the hat that resulted in probably the death of many, many more birds um, to acquire all of the feathers that literally cover the entire surface area of this fedora. So we're trying to show some of those things with the study skins alongside the garments and accessories. Are there ways to ethically and sustainably use feathers in fashion today? Oh, certainly. I think that there's definitely possibility for that. We have another piece in the collection that comes from brackish bow ties. They do uh, sustainably sourced feather bow ties. Uh, many of these birds have been domesticated. There are also at the far end uh, of our first uh, exhibition case, we end with a story about Patagonia. Uh, the outdoor wear company, and they have a child's jacket that is a down jacket that has a representation of bird feathers. It's a silkscreen printed uh, bird feather design on the outside. And then, of course, sandwiched between the two layers of fabric are down feathers, which probably most of us have some kind of down item in our homes, whether it's a pillow, a comforter, or a jacket. And down is the most insulating and lightest material in the world. This is a really incredible material and uh, amazing natural resource. It's renewable, biodegradable, and keeps the body warm. So in northernmost regions of Iceland, Finland, uh, Canada, there are colonies of eider ducks. And eider ducks have the best, most insulating down of, of any waterfowl. And in these colonies, there is ethical sourcing of down. So we've, we've displayed an eider specimen alongside the Patagonia jacket. What happens is that the, the female eider ducks will pluck the down off of their belly to keep their eggs insulated when they're nesting. And then these colonies of eider ducks are looked after by humans who gather just very, very small bits of the down from the nests or once the, once the eggs have hatched and uh, then remove the down from the nests. And the ducks, the females, will continue to pluck. So if you remove a little bit of down, they'll just put a little bit more back in there. Um, you have to be careful, though, because they will literally pluck themselves absolutely raw in service of their future children. So there is ethically sourced eider down. But then Patagonia has developed a new technique. They're sourcing used down from hotels, motels that have down pillows and down comforters. And they're, they've developed a method for sanitizing, re-sanitizing the down, and then reusing it. So it's the jacket that we have on display is reclaimed down. Do you have a favorite piece in the collection? Well, the second half of the exhibition is about birds as inspiration. And I think that one of my favorite pieces in the exhibition, which I think that um, 
Fitz, who's the director of the Lab of Ornithology and one of my co-curators, I think this is his favorite piece too, uh, is a 2011 Jill Stewart dress that has a a barn owl that's literally flying off the chest. And it's a a beautiful silkscreened representation of a barn owl. And what we did in that part of the exhibit is we paired the garments with video footage from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. They have all these bird cams, right? And they have a bird cam on on a barn owl in Texas named Dottie. And she's so cute and funny. So we have this footage loop of Dottie uh, in, uh, across from the, the barn owl dress. There's also a really beautiful downy fan. So marabou stork is a kind of stork, but marabou became a kind of catch-all term for a sort of light downy feather that's used in a lot of fashion items. We have a marabou jacket on display, but we also have a small sort of rondel style fan. And that fan was a Christmas present from Mark Twain to his then fiance just a couple months before they got married in 1869. So that has a, a cute story. But I think my ultimate favorite piece in the exhibition is a late 19th century fan. It's a white silk fan in about 10 to 15 different bird heads have been embroidered, very accurate representations of birds uh, embroidered on the fan. We see birds from, I think, like four different continents. And we don't really know the story of who owned this fan, but I like to imagine it was a a birder who's documenting their travels and what they've seen. But that was a really, a really fun one. So in the inspiration side of the exhibition, I worked with a number of different ornithologists, but mostly Vanya Rower, who's the curator at the Cornell University Museum of Vertebrates, to try to identify the different birds that we see abstracted on the different garments. And so we invite people to come to the exhibition and go birding uh, amongst the inspiration pieces and see what birds they can identify. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And we hope that you will all come up and see the exhibition. It's open through January 20th, 2020, and is on Level T of the Human Ecology Building. I'm Esther Rakusin for Locally Sourced Science. Just a few weeks ago, there may have been bees in your garden gathering pollen from fading goldenrod and aster flowers. We probably can't hope to see bees buzzing around outside until next spring. So, in the meantime, you can learn more about this intriguing buzzing insect at a new museum exhibit called Bees, Diversity, Evolution, and Conservation. It is on display at the Museum of the Earth at the Paleontological Research Institution, or PRI, in Ithaca. To hear more about this exhibit, I spoke with Dr. Brian Danforth, Chair and Professor in the Department of Entomology at Cornell University. He studies the evolution, population genetics, and conservation of bees. Dr. Danforth and Dr. Robert Ross of PRI are the curators of the exhibit. Helena Bloom of PRI designed, created, and installed the the displays in the exhibit. Bees, Diversity, Evolution, and Conservation was created with grant support from the National Science Foundation, or NSF, and the Tompkins County Tourism Program. Here's our conversation. Just to start off, why did you decide to create this exhibit? One of the things that I think people don't quite realize is how diverse bees are. Um, when, I'm, when I meet people uh, who I've never met before and I tell them I work on bees, they usually assume that I work on honeybees uh, and maybe bumblebees, 
but they don't realize that there's 20,000 species of bees on Earth um, uh, that all have very different and varied life histories, uh, modes of nesting, um, floral preferences, uh, and, and, and biologies. And so I, one of my kind of goals, really, is to educate the public about kind of the breadth of bee diversity. Back in 2014, we were developing a NSF grant proposal to study the, the phylogeny of bees and their closest relatives, the hunting wasps. In conversations with Rob, we, we decided that we should put into this grant proposal the idea of, a, of an exhibit uh, at the museum that would, uh, in parallel with the research we were doing, educate people about bee diversity and the origin of bees and the fossil record of bees. You mentioned diversity just to start off. I visited the exhibit and one of the things that I thought was really cool was that bees have different ways of life. Can you talk about the differences in the ways that bees live? Of the 20,000 bees on earth, we estimate that about 10% of those are social and the remaining 75% of the bees are solitary and about 15% are brood parasites. Let's um, walk through the different life histories of bees. So a solitary bee, that's 75% of all bees on Earth, is, is a type of bee in which the fem- a single female uh, builds her own nest. She provisions her, her brood cells with pollen and nectar. She lays her own eggs. She closes her brood cells, and then she guards that nest um, against parasites and predators. She may be active for only two to three to four weeks per year as an adult, but during that short period of time, she does all that work. She builds the nest, provisions it, lays her eggs, and she'll eventually die at the end of the season, but her developing larvae um, will remain in the, in the chambers that she's constructed and overwinter and come out the next year. The, the social bees are, are different in the sense that colonies consist initially of a foundress queen, who starts the nest, but then as she produces her first brood of offspring, those offspring become workers. So they're not going to reproduce. They're going to work for the queen as non-reproductive individuals. They're going to build the nest, guard the nest, forage for pollen and nectar. And meanwhile, while they're doing all the hard work, the queen is laying the eggs. And so we, we become very familiar with these bees because they actually, you know, they're pretty aggressive and can, can be very uh, nasty when you disturb their colonies. So I think that's why people are so familiar with the social bees. Okay, and then the parasitic bees. Those. Right, so the, the brood parasites are very cool bees. So these are that's about 15% of all bees. And those are bees that they don't build a nest. They, they, they don't forage for pollen and nectar. They sneak into the nest of other bees, and they sneak into the nest of primarily solitary bees. Um, and they enter the nest, and they surreptitiously deposit an egg. The, the brood parasite egg then hatches, uh, and out comes a very aggressive-looking, uh, scary uh, larva that seeks out the host egg or larva and kills it. And then the brood parasite then consumes the pollen that's been left by the host. They're, they're specifically attacking solitary um, uh, bees, Another um, part of the diversity that's on display in the exhibit has to do with what the bees eat. And one thing I was surprised about is that some bees eat oils from flowers. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the different types of foods that bees eat. Yeah, the oil bees are a very cool uh, group that's not very well known to most people. 
But there is a, a specific group of bees that have evolved the ability to um, harvest uh, uh, and transport the floral oils of certain host plants uh, back to their nest. And so let's step back for a second. And so a typical bee would uh, provision its brood cells with uh, pollen plus nectar. So pollen being the protein source uh, uh, um, for the larval development and nectar being the carbohydrate source. So a typical bee would mix pollen uh, together with nectar. And for, for larval development, the protein is really the important stuff. And so it's largely composed of pollen. But there are some, some bees that have um, switched from collecting nectar and mixing nectar into their pollen provisions to mixing floral oils into their pollen provisions. And these bees are a specialized group. They're all solitary, and they are very highly host plant-specific, visiting only um, one genus or a, a group of closely related species of plants that produce oils. And the plants produce these oils in, in little um, glands that are on the surface of the flower. And to, to gather those oils, the bees have to have special scrapers and brushes and mops and things like that for picking up these floral oils. And there are very few uh, plant families that produce these oils. Uh-huh. I'll give you one example of a, an oil bee that occurs in New York State. We have a, a genus of bees in, in New York called Macropus. And these are bees that nest um, only in kind of humid, uh, boggy habitats along the edges of ponds and streams. And their, 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 their floral host is Lysimachia, yellow loosestrife. And the bees use the floral oils to line the brood cell, so they waterproof the brood cell with the floral oils. One part of the exhibit talks about how bees and flowers evolve together. And what does that mean? Flowering plants um, appeared on Earth 140 million years ago which is prior to the first appearance of bees. So we know that the earliest flowering plants were probably visited by flies, um, beetles, moths, things that were, that, were, that were present 140 million years ago. But about 120 million years ago, so not too long after the origin of the flowering plants, um, bees appeared on Earth. And what you find in the fossil record is a great increase in flowering plant diversity between about 120 and 100 million years ago. And that would, that would coincide exactly with the origin of bees and the early diversification of bees. So we think that bees were, 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 were important in facilitating the diversification of the flowering plants. But at the same time, the flowering plants were, were essential for uh, you know, diversification of the bees. So we think those two groups kind of, that's in a sense, co-evolved uh, because of their partnership. If you're just tuning in, I'm speaking to entomologist Dr. Brian Danforth about the new exhibit at the Museum of the Earth, Bees, Diversity, Evolution, and Conservation. Another important part of the exhibit is about bee conservation. Why do you want viewers to know about this? Uh, I wanted the visitors to, to, to appreciate bees not only because they're so fascinating and interesting and biologically cool, but because, in fact, even the, the ones that we don't manage, you know, commercially, are contributing uh, economically to our ability to produce, you know, to produce uh, insect-pollinated crops. And I can talk specifically about apple pollinators because we did research on apple pollinators in New York for um, going on 10 years now, and we found that in in uh, apple orchards that we sampled from the Hudson Valley to Lake Ontario, 
um, we've detected 120 species of wild bees uh, visiting apple flowers. So that's quite a large number. That's that's about a quarter of the bees of New York. There are about 420 species of bees in New York. And so just in the early spring, in an apple orchard in New York, you can collect up to 40 species of, of these um, wild bees. But over the years, we did, we did a, a number of studies to evaluate how effective those wild bees are as apple pollinators. So we combined all our bee survey data with careful kind of pollination experiments, and we determined that for, for, for many orchards in New York State, the vast majority of the pollination is being done by the solitary um, wild bees. The main message we'd like to convey to the visitors is what they can do kind of to help the situation. And our, 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 our best advice is to suggest that people build a pollinator garden in their backyard. You can uh, find uh, information on the types of plants that are beneficial to wild pollinators, from a variety of sources, one of the best is the Xerxes Society. So it's the um, Xerxes Society of Invertebrate Conservation, X-E-R-X-E-S dot org. And you'll get a list of plants that you can purchase locally and plant in your garden and that will be beneficial to um, both wild and managed bees. Thank you for talking to me about the exhibit, Bees, Diversity, Evolution, and Conservation at the Museum of the Earth. Well, thanks very much, Esther. It's been great talking to you. You can visit the exhibit Bees, Diversity, Evolution, and Conservation at the Museum of the Earth at the Paleontological Research Institution in Ithaca until June 1st, 2020. To learn more about the museum, visit the website priweb.org. You've been listening to Locally Sourced Science. I'm Esther Rakusin, and I produced today's show and the interview with Dr. Brian Danforth. Patricia Waldron produced the interview with Dr. Denise Green. Liz Mahood produced the Science News. We thank Joe Lewis and Cece Giannotti for our theme music and Blue Dot Sessions for their music. Science out.